Volume Two, Chapter One of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Red Abrus. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Volume Two, Chapter One. How Francis received the good news. When Francis, after a night's rest, disturbed by thoughts and calculations as to ways and means, had arrived at the definite resolution to ask Jane Melville to marry him, he recalled a thousand signs of her affectionate regard for him, of her understanding his character as no one ever cared to understand it before, of her sympathy with all his past life and his present position, which left him no doubt that she would return his love and accept of him. The home and the welcome he was prepared to offer to Elsie would plead with her own heart in his favour. All her theoretical objections as to cousins marrying, which after all is a very doubtful point and has much to be said on both sides, all her ambition for himself would melt away before the warmth of the truest love and the hope of the happiest home in the world. And yet she was not to be won entirely, or even chiefly, by personal pleadings for happiness, or by the feeling that her life and Elsie's might go on smoothly and cheerfully with him. She was to be convinced that it was right that she should marry him, and then the whole of her affectionate and ardent nature would abandon itself to the pleasure of loving and being beloved. It was because she had no husband to occupy her heart that she dwelt so fondly on those abstractions of public duty and social progress, and he would convince her that out of an aggregate of happy homes a happy people is composed. She had found opportunities both of gaining knowledge and of doing good in the most unfavourable circumstances, and she would have more chances as his wife with his cooperation and sympathy. She was not the sort of woman his poetical and artistic dreams had been wont to draw as the partner of his life, not the lovely clinging dependent girl who would look up to him for counsel and support, but something better both in herself and for him than his fancy had ever painted. Her powers of sympathy had been increased by her knowledge. She was as just as she was generous. There was no corner of his heart he could not lay bare to her, no passage of his past life that he could not trust to her, judging fairly and charitably. Whether he rose or fell in the world, whether he gained social influence or lost it in the career that he had again to begin, her foot would be planted firmly beside his. Her insight and sympathy would heighten every enjoyment and fortify him for every trial. That he felt her to be beautiful, perhaps, was more in his powers of seeing than in her positive charm of countenance, but so far as the soul looked through her eyes and breathed from her lips, she had a sort of beauty that did not weary any intelligent gazer, and at all events which could never weary Francis Hogarth. 
after all the flattery he had met with since his accession to fortune and the conventionalisms of society in which he had been plunged he felt the transparent sincerity of jane's character something to rest in with perfect confidence and perfect satisfaction the most brilliant frenchwomen had not her earnestness or her power though they had far more vivacity and made their interlocutors more satisfied with themselves and francis felt that he ought to be married and how could he ever attach himself sufficiently to any other woman and not draw comparisons between her and the woman whom his interest his worldly interest alone forbade him to make his wife he must learn to love jane less or obtain from herself leave to love her more jane's joyous greeting when he came to peggy's for his cousins to take them to the exhibition startled him not a little and when she eagerly told him of mr brandon's views for her future advancement and that both he and peggy had no doubt that she would suit the phillipses and that an answer was sure to be had in a few days and demanded his congratulations on her altered prospects then asked him to submit his plans for cottages to peggy's inspection as she was by far the most competent judge as to their merits or deficiencies old thomas lowry was also taken into counsel and his wondering admiration of the bonny slated houses was something worth seeing peggy's suggestion of the addition of a little storeroom in which milk and meal and potatoes could be kept was put and carried unanimously they then went into the allotment questions and jane elsie and peggy offered their opinions as to the fittest persons for the boon and then began to wonder how many years it would be before they could make the land pay all this which ought to have gratified francis for every man should be glad when people take an interest in his plans struck a chill to his heart for it boded no good to his new visions you seem to be in great spirits altogether today jane said he how can i help it the prospect of a situation of 50 or 60 pounds a year is something overpoweringly delightful to me if i had heard of such a thing 6 months ago I should have been glad but now that I have felt the difficulty of getting any employment whatever and feel quite sure that I am fit for this my only dread is lest Mr Phillips may have got another person or may not like my appearance but if he is satisfied to engage me I am determined to save money to start in business by and by we are going to join Peggy in Melbourne but your sister how do you feel about leaving her i was quite aware that i must leave her if i meant to do anything of any value for myself i'm never going to stand in jane's light any more said elsie i am not so selfish as to regret any piece of good fortune that comes to her alone and i think of inquiring a little further as to her points said jane oh no that is altogether useless said elsie You promised yesterday to let Francis see them today, Elsie. We must have his opinion on this subject. I certainly think I could do more personally than by letter to get them published. 
"'And Jane always wished so much to see London,' said Elsie. "'I am so glad to think she has such a prospect. "'And from all Peggy's accounts of Mr. Phillips, "'he is everything that could be wished. "'How little we thought when we listened to her long tale "'about her taking such care of Emily and Harriet Phillips, "'the first night we came to live here, "'that she was saving pupils for Jane. "'It seems like a fate.' "'Then what are you going to do?' said Frances, who did not seem so much delighted with Jane's good news as she had expected. "'Are you to live here with Peggy as before?' "'Not just as before. I am going to Mrs. Dunn's through the day, and Peggy is good enough to say she will be glad to keep me, though I lose my better half in Jane. I think I really have some taste and talent for millinery, and I mean to try to cultivate it.' for if we begin business together in Melbourne, it might be very useful. Jane and I lay awake half the night talking over our plans, and I do not see why we should not make our way in time. Then you are going to forget the muses altogether, and give your whole soul to business? Did you not do that every day, cousin Francis, when you were at the bank? said Elsie. Perhaps you may write better poetry when you do not make it your day's work. "'Do you not think she may, Francis?' said Jane. "'Very probably, very probably she may,' said Francis, thoughtfully, "'as if he were weighing the advantages of literature being a staff over its being a crutch. "'But in reality he was not thinking of Elsie or her verses at all. "'He had prepared himself to make a great sacrifice, "'to do something very generous and quixotic.' not altogether uninfluenced by the wish for personal happiness of the highest kind. But yet he believed that his chief motives for taking the resolution were the forlorn and hopeless situation of the two girls. Now they were no longer forlorn or hopeless. If this situation for Jane was obtained, and Elsie persevered in her determination to work hard at the perfecting of her taste for making caps and bonnets, they had a definite plan of life, likely to be as prosperous as that he could offer to them. And Jane would not accept of him today, though she would probably have done so yesterday. His plans, his ambitions were too dear to her to be thrown away lightly, and he could see nothing but sisterly affection in her eyes. If she took the position she was entitled to at Mr. Phillips, she was likely to meet with some society there and Mr. Brandon, or some other Australian settler, not so shy of matrimony without a fortune on the lady's part, as the middle-class Englishman of this century is, might see some of the virtues and attractions which he had learned to love. No one could see so many of them as himself, and might win the best wife in the world, without being fully conscious of the blessing. He knew the real strength of his love when he tried to fancy Jane the wife of anyone else. He almost wished she might fail in her object, and that Mr. Phillips would decide that she would not suit. He was selfish enough to hope that she might not be happy there. They must continue to correspond as frequently and as openly as hitherto. He would watch for any turn that might offer him hope, 
and he must be all the more careful to disguise his real feelings, lest it might prevent her from expressing herself as frankly as she had done. When a blessing appears to be lost, its value is greatly enhanced, and all the comforts and privileges and opportunities of his present situation that he had made such an effort to give up seemed to shrink into insignificance compared with the domestic happiness that was now eluding his grasp. There was a great lamentation among the bairns this morning when I said something about Miss Jean may be leaving us but they took great comfort from the recollection that they had learnt to write so well that they might send real post-letters to her, not mere make-beliefs, and she promised to answer them. Tam says if she goes to London she must keep on the lookout for anything that is in his line, and indeed Miss Jean said she would. It is a real blessing that Penny Post. In my young days to think of writing back and forth to London about anything ye wanted to know would have been out of question for poor folk, said Peggy. You must write to me too, said Francis, about all the things and all the people you see and how you like them. And if you tire of London or of teaching, just every mood as you feel it. I do not think it was quite fair in you always showing me the brightest side of your life. I do not mean to show you always mine. When you are disappointed because the workmen will not build the cottages fast enough, or because the inhabitants do not keep them as clean as your fastidious taste thinks necessary, or because the dull Scottish brain will not readily take up the Flemish or French ideas you want to engraft in them, you will write all your indignant or disgusted expressions to me, rather than lose patience with the people themselves, it is safer. I am prepared for some disappointments, but I will wait patiently and in hope for the end. Did you always have this large amount of public spirit, Jane? It struck me very forcibly the first evening you spent with me at my house. I think it lay dormant for a few months before my uncle's death, said Jane, laughing but it came out stronger than ever afterwards. Francis is very grave today. I would not trust him with your verses, Elsie. His criticism will be far too severe in his present mood. But I'll trust him just at this very time, said Elsie, for if this dull morning has made him a little depressed, perhaps he may feel a little for me sitting in my cheerless room without hope and without society. I beg your pardon, Jane. You are always good and kind, and so was Peggy and everyone. But it was so dull, so very dull. But what I mean is that if Francis is moody and dispirited, as a great many people are at times, my verses will not seem to him such a wail as to the busy, merry world we live in. I never saw a more favourable-looking critic. Elsie then went to her drawer, and for the first time since she had tied up her manuscript, touched it without a sick pang at her heart. The very sight of the enveloping brown paper had been odious to her, but today she felt courage enough to untie it, and to select a few of what she considered her best pieces for her cousin's perusal. Much depends on the mood of the reader of poetry. Francis did not find Elsie's sad views of life at all overdrawn, and he pointed out both to her and to Jane many fine passages, and what he considered to be pretty images. 
Here and there he found fault, but on the whole, he said, Elsie's verses were full of promise, and she only had to wait patiently for a while to observe as well as to reflect, and not to be quite so subjective, to attain to excellence. At the exhibition and at the concert in the evening, Francis had again to admire the naturally fine taste of his younger cousin, and to lament with her that none of her talents had been cultivated. According to all his preconceived fancies, he should have fallen in love with Elsie, but it was not so. She was a sweet, amiable girl, with a great deal of quickness and undeveloped talent, but she was chiefly dear to him as Jane's sister. Elsie felt for the time restored to a better opinion of herself, and was grateful to the person who thought well of what the world seemed to despise. She was disposed now to do Francis justice, and more than justice. Never had she talked with a man of finer taste or more admirable judgment. She got another glimpse of William Dalzell, who was at the concert with the Rennies and Miss Wilson, and contrasted her old favourite with her new, very much to the disadvantage of the farmer. Francis was aware that this was the person from whose attentions Jane had been in such danger. He could scarcely conceive the possibility of a woman of such admirable sense and such penetration as Jane forming an attachment to one so shallow and so unheroic. He felt himself scarcely worthy of Jane Melville, and he would never compare himself with the Laird of Mostar. But the young people had been thrown together, and had spent much of their time of meeting in the open air. William Dalzell was a good rider and a fearless sportsman. He rode a beautiful horse, and was very careful of it. He appeared to have a good temper, and his mother worshipped him, while Elsie was never weary of sounding his praises. Mr. Hogarth was in indifferent health and was somewhat exacting at all times. He had not the sympathy with the high spirits of youth that he had had in former years, so that Jane had enjoyed the animated rides where she did most of the talking to a listener, young, handsome, and determined to be pleased with everything she said, and did. She thought she interested him in her favourite subjects. He had said that she improved him and his mother said the same, so that she rejoined in her influence, which seemed to bear such good results. Miss Rennie, who had heard when in Shire a somewhat exaggerated account of young Dalzell's attachment to Miss Melville, was very much disgusted with his conduct, and though his attentions to Laura Wilson amused her very much, she had a grudge at him for their mercenary motives. Laura was evidently captivated at first sight. She could speak of nobody but Mr. Dalzell, and Mr. Rennie, as her guardian, was a little alarmed, but on inquiry he found that Moss Tower was not very deeply dipped after all. Mrs. Dalzell had her jointure of it, but he was an only son, and any little wildness or extravagance of youth was likely to be put an end to by marriage. Laura was a somewhat troublesome ward, so passionate and so self-willed, that even at school she had carried her point against him by sheer determination over and over again, 
and he wished heartily to be well freed of her by marriage with a tolerably respectable man. Her fortune he would secure her future husband from making ducks and drakes off by settlements, which are generally in Britain framed as if the future husband was an enemy to be dreaded, and not a friend to be trusted. For the law as it stands puts such enormous power not only over happiness, which is inevitable, but over property and liberty into the hands of the husband, to be used against as well as for the advantage of the wife, that it is only by taking power from both and vesting it in trustees that money can be saved for the wife and children. In the cases where the marriage is a happy one, the settlement is a hindrance and a nuisance, but in such cases as that of William Dalzell and Laura Wilson, it would be prudent to evade the law of the land and to preserve the property of the heiress by such means. End of Volume 2, Chapter 1 Recording by Red Abris September 2008